I want you to notice the first phrase in verse 46. It says, Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell on his face prostrate before Daniel. Now, I don't know about you, but to me, that is an absolutely remarkable statement. In fact, uh, it's so remarkable, liberals have said it just could not have happened. It's impossible. They say uh, that Nebuchadnezzar would not have bowed before a mere captive, no matter what the circumstances might be. They point out he wouldn't have bowed before anyone in the kingdom, let alone Daniel, who had four strikes against him. Daniel was extremely young, and you know the culture of that day. The old do not bow before the young. He was a foreigner, he was a captive, and he was a servant. And yet here is Nebuchadnezzar bowing down before Daniel, humbled in the dust. Well, my only response to them who say this is just another evidence that Daniel is just riddled with mistakes, it's mere mythology, is you weren't there, God was. And that settles it for me. Uh, uh, Our God is a God of miracles. And let me tell you, God's power continues to work in human hearts in that way through signs and wonders to this present day. I think hardly a month goes by when I do not get reports back from the mission field, especially from Islamic countries. I'm not sure why, but especially from Islamic countries where God has performed miracles and caused people's mouths to be stopped who have formerly resisted the gospel or in other ways has prepared people to hear the gospel. And some of those stories are just as remarkable as the one we see here where Nebuchadnezzar falls on his face before this captive uh, foreigner. And uh, uh, what I want to do this morning is I want to look at the impact that miracles can have upon hardened heart. And this book talks about various types of miracles. Uh, The one here in chapter 2 happens to be a controversial one, dreams and visions. Uh, What are we to make uh, uh, of that? But there are other kinds of miracles as well. In chapter 3, we see an incredible physical miracle where three men are in a fiery furnace, and yet they are untouched by the flame. Uh, In chapter uh, 4, we find the uh, miraculous producing of an illness. Now think about that. It wasn't a healing at this point. Later on, he heals uh, Nebuchadnezzar. But at that point, it was an illness brought by God's sovereignty. And God continues to produce illnesses for his own glory in both believers as well as unbelievers' uh, lives. Uh, In chapter uh, 5, we have the handwriting on the wall. In chapter 6, we find God shutting the mouth of the lions. And uh, we have a friend in Ethiopia who had exactly that happen to her, only it was with a leopard who was sitting on her chest for several minutes. And I may share that story and some others when we get to that portion uh, of Scripture. But there is plenty of uh, material about miracles in this book to make liberals feel very queasy. And praise God, our God is a God of miracles. And I want to, first of all, examine the question of miracles just briefly. We're not going to spend a lot of time on that. But um, examine whether or not they continue to happen today. Uh, Because if miracles do not continue to happen today, I might as well just skip over this section and go on to the next chapter. There's no point in applying this. There would be no application for the present. And I want to examine that question. Does he continue to bring awe into the hearts of unbelievers through his mighty acts? Does he continue to bring believers into favor with unbelievers through signs and through wonders? You know, there are some conservatives 
who ought to be champions of miracles against the liberals who feel just as queasy as the liberals do about the presence of miracles. And I think one of the reasons for that is we like to be a bit in control. Uh, We don't like things that happen unexpectedly that aren't part of the paradigm that we're used to. But let me tell you, God does not fit in a box, and we will never be able to box our God. He is free to act as he chooses. And you look in the last verses of the Gospel of Mark, and you will find that believers have signs and wonders following after them. In James chapter 5, God doesn't restrict healing to the apostles. He says, if anyone is sick, let him call for the elders, and the prayer of faith will heal the sick. In fact, in verse 16, he implies any Christian can pray for healing. He says, confess your trespasses to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The effective, fervent prayer of an apostle? No. The effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. He's explaining why it is that we can all pray for one another that we might be healed. And then, to give extra weight to that, he appeals as an example to Elijah of all things. Now, to us, that may not be very uh, comforting, we might think. Well, that doesn't help me at all. The reason Elijah had his prayers answered was because he was a prophet, was because he was something special, totally different from where we are at. And yet that's not the application that James makes. James in the next phrase says, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land for three years and six months. And he prayed again, and the heaven gave rain, and the earth produced its fruit. See, James does not treat the miracles of the Old Testament as having no relevance in our lives today. Rather, he uses those very miracles to stir up our expectation that God continues to work in our midst today. Now, as I said before, I'm not going to settle the question of what kinds of revelation uh, uh, cease in the first century. When we get to Daniel chapter 9, we're going to be seeing there are some that continue, there are some that are said to cease and specifically the infallible kind, and uh, probably the kind that uh, are mentioned in the last phrase of verse 45, the dream is certain, its interpretation is sure. In other words, talking about, uh, about infallibility. But I am convinced signs and wonders continue in every age of the church. And I want to look at both the limits and the benefits. The limits, first of all, first limitation of miracles is that evidence alone cannot convert. Uh, There are some people, and they've told me, if only we could get more evidence before this person, he would believe. And and they think it's, it's a matter of evidence, whereas the Scripture says it's a matter of regeneration. If the heart is not regenerated, it doesn't matter how much evidence is there, they're not going to be converted. And Nebuchadnezzar is certainly not converted in this chapter here. Uh, He is struck with awe, with fear of God. He is humbled, but he's not yet converted because in chapter 3 we see that he is promoting idolatry on pain of death. And we see later on in there that he blasphemes against the God of heaven. We see that there is not a change in heart that is permanent that is made in that book. And we find the same effect for other miracles in the Scriptures. In the book of Acts, uh, you, you look at Simon Magus, You'll find he's fascinated with the miraculous, and yet he is as unconverted as ever. Now, that's not to say God does not use miracles in the conversion process. You see that all through the Gospels. 
But what I am saying is that apart from regeneration, we're not going to respond as we ought to respond. There were people for whom Christ presented a miracle in the Gospels. Some came to faith. Others were completely hardened. Okay, so there are differences in in approach that people have. People do not need more evidence. They have plenty of evidence enough to damn them. What they need is the supernatural working of the Holy Spirit in their hearts to change their hearts and receive the clear evidence that is presented to them. Uh, when I, uh, a year after I graduated from high school, I was uh, witnessing to an individual, and he thought the Bible was just a bunch of hogwash. And uh, finally he said to me, well, I tell you what, if God came down here and he spoke to me and uh, he performed a miracle, then I would believe. And my brother says, you wouldn't believe. With your state of heart, you wouldn't believe even if there was a miracle. And I wasn't at the time sure what he was talking about. But I want you to turn with me to Luke 16, and we'll take a look at an example of why it is that miracles and other things have limitations apart from the working of the Spirit. Luke chapter 16. I'm not going to read the whole story. It's the story of the rich man and Lazarus. I want to start at verse 27, where the rich man begs that Lazarus might rise from the dead to tell his relatives about salvation. Now, that would have been quite a miracle. Verse 27, then he said, I beg you, therefore, Father, that you would send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, that he may testify to them, lest they also come to this place of torment. Abraham said to him, they have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. Abraham is word-centered, not miracle-centered. Okay, the word is the most important thing in his ministry, and he knows that is what God has chosen to use to bring people to faith. By the way, apart from regeneration, they're not even going to respond to the word. But here, the word has priority. Now, one of the arguments we might have is given in verse 30. He said, no, Father Abraham, but if he goes to them from the dead, they will repent. But he said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rise from the dead. Until people are regenerate, they will not hear the gospel. They will not look at miracles and respond properly. Now, that in no way puts down miracles any more than it puts down the gospel. It is just the reality of the hardness of human hearts until God comes and regenerates people. Uh, Miracles have plenty of value. They had value before Pharaoh and before Nebuchadnezzar and Naaman and before many other people. But there are limits. No amount of evidence is going to convert people. Uh, The only, you might say, miraculous cure for a hardened heart is the miracle of regeneration. Secondly, miracles did not clear up Nebuchadnezzar's bad theology. He continues to have bad theology all the way through until you get to chapter 4 where God clears that up for him. And I have seen the same thing in the lives of people who have experienced mighty miracles and yet have messed up theology. And you don't just take all of their theology because God has been working in their lives. He didn't have his theology uh, uh, turned around just because of viewing a miracle. The third thing that was accomplished is that this miracle did not produce lasting change in Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, He seems to forget about this power of God rather quickly in chapter 3. And again, you've probably witnessed the same thing in the lives of other people. Uh, Foxhole conversions, where a person says, Lord, if you get me out of this fix, you know, it'll take a miracle to get me out of this fix, uh, I'll, I'll believe in you. Well, the Lord gets them out of the fix, and they don't believe, and that's happened in believers' lives as well. And there are other limitations that we could look at 
But the focus of Daniel 2 is not on limitations. The focus of Daniel 2 is on the incredible impact that that miracle had. And that's what I want to spend the rest of our time uh, looking at is uh, what they do accomplish. And there are six benefits that uh, I have outlined here for you. Uh, First of all, we've already seen how the supernatural encounter with Nebuchadnezzar really gets his attention. It's almost like God has grabbed him by the collar and uh, he can't get away. He's got to focus on the fact God is at work here. And I I, I think it would get your attention if uh, a preacher of the gospel saw into the secrets of your heart. And that has happened many times, not just in biblical times, but it has happened many times down through history. We're going to see in Daniel 9, there is no more infallible, inspired revelation. There was, uh, uh, that is, uh, Daniel 9 says, would cease in the first century. But I believe God continues to be what uh, verse 47 talks about as the revealer of secrets. Uh, Charles Spurgeon, the, the Baptist uh, minister, has had several occasions where God has opened up his insight into the secrets of people's hearts many times to the saving of their soul. There have been Puritan writers who have said the same thing. It has happened to me on more than one occasion. Uh, God is the revealer of secrets. In fact, uh, this past week, uh, uh, one of the members shared with me a story that happened uh, recently. Um, uh, his, uh, his wife was at a, an unbeliever's house, and about the time that she was leaving, the daughter was bringing the mother into the garage, and the mother got locked into her car, if I understand the story right, and the door got closed with the car running. And they were thinking, we got to get this unlocked. They didn't have the keys, and they were looking around uh, in the house, and the daughter didn't know where the keys were. So this member prayed, Lord... Where are those keys? Immediately, the thought was, go to this drawer. Sure enough, there it was. And they they got them out. And afterwards, they asked, how in the world did you know where those keys were? She says, well, I didn't know. I asked God, and God showed them to me. Now, that gets an unbeliever's attention. Because it's not just a God who's working 2,000 years ago. It's a God who is interacting with us right now. It's a God who is real. It is a God who can provide for the needs of His people. And uh, it's not just the opening up of our minds. Last year, I related the story of uh, some missionaries who were surrounded by a hostile tribe, a hostile group of warriors that was going to kill them. And the uh, one missionary, he didn't know what to say. He just blurted out, our God is a God who can move mountains and cast them into the sea. And the chief said, there's a mountain. Pray to your God to move it and we won't kill you. And his heart was just sort of sinking. Why did I say such a stupid thing as that? And uh, so he, but he led his little band in prayer and prayed that God would move that mountain. And at that moment, an earthquake came and the front part of that mountain went into the sea. That got their attention. It grabbed them so that as they preached the gospel, many of them uh, believed the saving of their souls. And all down through history, there are many, many examples of how God has gotten the attention of people through signs and through wonders. A second impact that this miracle had was how suddenly and thoroughly the mouth of arrogance was stopped. Now, in past sermons, we've already seen how incredibly arrogant Nebuchadnezzar was. He treats himself as if he is God in chapter 2. He continues to do so in chapter 3. But there was an interim time where it served God's purposes to stop the mouth of his arrogance. And I want to read again verse 46. 
Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell on his face prostrate before Daniel and commanded that they should present an offering and incense to him. Not too long before, he was ready to kill Daniel. Now he's fallen on the ground before Daniel. He is humbled in the very dust. And let me tell you, for anybody who was being persecuted on the front lines of the mission field, this is a tremendous benefit. You cannot tell me signs and wonders do not have benefits for the present. It is a great uh, benefit. My parents were missionaries in Ethiopia, and I saw this at work firsthand many times at their uh, first station. Now, this one I did not see, but uh, my parents told me about it. Their first station, Goba, there was a witch doctor who was very, very powerful. And this witch doctor did everything in his power to try to stop my parents and to harass my parents and to persecute them. And uh, he was a very, very wealthy man. Thousands upon thousands of people would go to him every year because Satan had given him a gift of healing. Got to remember, for everything that God has given, Satan has a counterfeit. And he had the ability to heal people. So people came from all around, and he grew wealthy from doing this. Now, here's the irony. God gave this witch doctor a disease that he couldn't get cured from. And uh, uh, that in itself was a miracle. And uh, the witch doctor heard that God had uh, done uh, miracles through my father. And so he, he asked my father to come. My father administered uh, medication and prayed for him. He was immediately healed. Now, when word got out and the people began hearing that my father had healed this witch doctor, people started coming to my dad instead of to the witch doctor uh, for medication and things like that. Now, here's the point. This witch doctor never became a Christian, but he stopped his persecution of my parents. His mouth of arrogance was stopped because he saw a power that he could not deny. Uh, on our station in Durami, my parents were constantly harassed by the police in, in town. And uh, I remember on several occasions being real nervous, wondering what was going to happen to my parents. Uh, they usually got off the hook because um, uh, Haile Selassie, the emperor, was uh, very friendly toward missionaries. So anytime my parents got in trouble, they just sent a letter up there and uh, uh, Haile Selassie got it uh, straightened out. But the, uh, the national leaders especially were harassed. There were two officials in particular who were the worst. And over and over again, they would arrest these leaders. They would steal all that they had. They became poor. And so the church offered this up before the Lord. And talk about the power of imprecatory prayer. They prayed to the Lord when they had arrested this one evangelist. And God struck one of these evangelists with lightning and from that time on, the other evangelist did not lift a finger against the other Christians. Uh, his mouth of arrogance was stopped because he had gained a respect for the power of God. So God continues to shut the mouths of arrogance through miracles. And I think we need to seek miracles. Some people say uh, we ought not to seek miracles. And they'll point to the scripture that says a, a unbelieving generation seeks after a miracle. And... Uh, and they say, well, we don't want to be an unbelieving generation, so we shouldn't seek after a miracle. But that's very poor exegesis. Uh, it tells us in that passage, yes, unbelieving generation was seeking after a miracle, and they got miracle after miracle, and they never believed. They continued to be hostile against God. It doesn't tell us what a believing generation does. Uh, there are other passages that tell us what a believing generation does, and it specifically says they sought after signs and wonders. 
God commanded the 70 disciples to go out in signs and wonders, healing and, and other uh, casting out demons. And so we ought not to be determining our exegesis by passages uh, that talk about what unbelievers do. A third benefit was that this testified to God's greatness. Now, it's true, Nebuchadnezzar later on reverts to his paganistic thinking, but I want you to see how clearly he sees the power and the greatness of God in verse 47. The king answered Daniel and said, Truly, your God is the God of gods, the Lord of kings, and a revealer of secrets, since you could reveal this secret. He was testifying to God. And you know, this has happened over and over again down through history. Christy Wilson tells how streams of Muslims used to come to him in Afghanistan and ask him to uh, pray for healing. And he used to say, well, I'm not a medical doctor. And they'd say, we know you're not a medical doctor, but we know that you pray and we want you to pray to your God for our healing. Well, he would do that. And many, many times uh, these people would be healed. Some were converted, some were not converted, but they all testified to God's greatness, and the news spread around. Jonathan Edwards wrote extensively on the miracles that accompanied the Great Awakening and showed how they pointed to the sovereign greatness of our God. In Ethiopia, when people made a profession of faith, they were not um, uh, going into it blindly. They knew that when they decided for Christ there could very well be repercussions. And if God was not powerful enough to protect them, boy, would they get it from Satan. And when people made a testimony for Christ and made public profession, all of the other people would watch and wait to see what Satan was going to do because they knew the power of Satan in their lives. And when they saw the very opposite, they saw the protection that those people had, it just gave boldness to other people to take that same step for the Lord. But miracles testify to God's greatness. The fourth impact that it had was to gain a hearing for biblical religion. Look at verse 47 again. And I'm going to be reading this a second time, but this time don't be thinking so much of the impact it had on Nebuchadnezzar. Think of the impact this would have on those who were listening to Nebuchadnezzar and watching him fall on his face saying this. The king answered Daniel and said, Truly, your God is the God of gods, the Lord of kings, and a revealer of secrets, since you could reveal this secret. This would have been a tremendous testimony for everyone who was looking on. And even if Nebuchadnezzar didn't seek, he later does, but even if he didn't seek after the, the gospel, the good news of salvation, there may have been onlookers who would. During the Italian occupation of Ethiopia, uh, there was a, a very pompous uh, official who uh, did all that he could to oppose the spreading of the gospel. And on this one occasion, uh, he had captured an evangelist, and he was going to make a public example of them by executing him. And uh, he gathered the whole countryside, thousands of people that were gathered around, and he gave a pompous speech about, uh, uh, well, a number of different things, but the root of it was, if you guys follow... Uh, this God, this is what's going to happen to you. They tied up the evangelist on the road. They got a truck. They, they went to run over the truck, and right before the man, they hid an invisible force. And after the guy peeled himself off the, the uh, steering wheel, he backed up, he did it again. And a third time, he hit that, that force. He was so scared, he opened the door, and he went running off. Now, the crowds were just astounded by this. They said, we want to find out about this God who can do this kind of protection. And this evangelist had a hearing for the gospel. 
He had a hearing for what the God of gods uh, could do. And uh, there are hundreds of similar stories that could be given from India and China and Pakistan and other countries. And I want us to begin praying that God would not only do miracles and wonders in other countries, but would do so here in this city and in our midst as well. The fifth impact that occurred was that it brought Daniel into favor with the king and positioned him to where he could have godly influence. Verse 48, Then the king promoted Daniel and gave him many great gifts, and he made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and chief administrator over all of the wise men of Babylon. So he had two positions that were given, ruler over Babylon. He's the chief administrator over all of the wise men uh, that Nebuchadnezzar had. So there was an enormous opportunity to speak God's word, to influence a huge portion of the population with God's word. And history tells us Daniel used that to great effect. Uh, we see several other examples of this in Scripture. When uh, Paul was shipwrecked on the uh, island of Malta, there was a, an official, very leading citizen by the name of Publius, and he had a father uh, who was sick. When Paul healed his sick father, it gave him an opening even beyond what he had had in the remainder of the time that they ministered there. And I don't know how many times I have read similar testimonies, especially recently coming out of India. Uh, uh, on one occasion, and actually this is not one of the more recent ones, this happened in 1983, there was an evangelistic truck that was um, proceeding up the mountainside, uh, and I forget now which province it was in, and uh, the truck driver wanted to go past this one village because every time trucks had gone into that village, they had been beaten up and kicked out. Some had died from going in there, and he says, we just go on past this. And uh, the evangelist, uh, Pradip Sudra, he sensed in his spirit that they needed to go to that village. And he argued with the truck driver, and they finally went up there. And sure enough, as soon as they got into the village, they were surrounded by a, a mob of angry people who had sticks and stones in their hands. And uh, before the mob could do anything, there was a Muslim mullah, a local mullah, who came and tried to calm the crowd. And here is the astonishing words that they heard from his mouth. He said, I've heard that Jesus heals. Now, if you are true servants of Jesus, then I want you to do one thing. I'll let you preach in this village, but only on one condition. That is, my wife has been ill. She's been in bed for five years. Pray for her. If she gets healed, you have my permission to preach here. If she doesn't get healed, and he didn't fill in the rest of the statement, but they could only guess what, um, what would happen to them. They went to uh, the mullah's home, and in that culture, you didn't, touch a woman, so they had him, lay, the, the mullah, lay hands on her, and they prayed through her. They sensed that there was a, a demon that was oppressing her, and uh, they cast out the demon. She immediately was healed. She got up. She served them tea. Well, that had a tremendous impact on the tribe, and he was, a, he was the chief one who was encouraging the preaching. In the next three weeks of their preaching, 250 people, more than 250 people, came to a saving knowledge of the Lord in that village. In the Kambata province of uh, Ethiopia, where my parents spent most of their ministry, quite a few of the Christians were in positions of influence uh, and power, unlike some of the other tribes, I think precisely for the same reason. Now, it helped that there were a lot more Christians uh, in that tribe as well, but they were trusted, they were respected, they had special privileges. 
And that leads to the last benefit, that it not only benefited Daniel, it benefited Daniel's friends. Verse 49, also Daniel petitioned the king, and he set Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the affairs of the province of Babylon. But Daniel sat in the gate of the king. Now, I do not want to paint a picture that uh, miracles would not be opposed. (laughs) Miracles were opposed all through the ministry of Christ. Okay, the, the Pharisees were envious of those miracles, and they didn't. They were uh, nervous about for Christians in general. Uh, there's a mission agency in India that I pray for, and um, one of the reports toward the end of 1996 gave a similar uh, story to what I I was giving, where uh, this one. Uh, a, a local missionary and uh, his friend were uh, surrounded by a hostile, a tri- a hostile group of people, and uh, they were going to be stoned. And he overheard one of the people saying that his sister was sick, and he says, "May we pray for your sister because our God is able to heal." And they were kind of skeptical, but their curiosity was piqued, and they said, "Yes, we won't beat you if uh, you come and heal her." Well, they went to the home. God did perform a miracle and healed that woman, and the whole crowd's hostility dissolved. It went away. It brought them into favor with uh, the the believers. And uh, so you can see there are many benefits to the seeking of miracles. And it's true, we ought not to elevate miracles above the place that God has given for them, Uh, Miracles is all some people want to talk about. They're not word-centered. And yet we should not so neglect the power of God that miracles are foreign to our lives. You might want to write down a verse. Ephesians 1.19 says that the same power which raised up Christ from the dead, it's a pretty awesome miracle, says the same power which raised up Christ from the dead is at work in those who believe. It is at work in those who believe. 2 Timothy 3.5 warns us about professing a Christianity but denying the power thereof. 1 Corinthians 2.5 says, Your faith should not be in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. 1 Corinthians 4.20 says, For the kingdom of God is not in word only, but in power. Let's pray that our congregation would have a ministry that shows forth and demonstrates the power of God in our midst. May 1 Corinthians 2, verses 4 through 5, be true of our ministry. And my speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words of human wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, that your faith should not be in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Amen.